We'll open up with prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your mercy and your grace. Your mercy is new every morning, and we thank you that you're faithful even when we're faithless, for you cannot deny yourself. And Lord, we do pray today as we look at your word and specifically how to refute those who are in error in the critical theory. We pray, Lord, that we would think well upon the biblical text, that we may be prepared to give an answer for all those who ask for the reason for the hope that is within us with gentleness and respect. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I, um, this is going to be part two of a part that we began where I want to help the church here and at large address something called critical theory, which I think is obviously damaging to the culture. But more importantly, it's an attack on the gospel. And I think we as Christians are uniquely kind of poised to be able to give an answer, as we're called to in Scripture, to this critical theory And I wanted to kind of equip people with three things that they could show categorically that must change in the thinking of those who are involved with the critical theory at a social justice church. And so I wanted you to remind you here, um, remember this second session got stalled because my son had COVID and I had to be in um, hiding or whatever they call it, quarantine. So uh, thank you, Bob, for filling in for me. So this is part two, but I want to do a little review And this is the debated categories that we thought we can sit down with someone at an Embers or Perkins or some restaurant and go through these things to show that critical theory is unbiblical. The first was the fundamental laws of logic exist because God created them. Believe it or not, that is under attack in the postmodern epistemology. Epistemology, remember, is that term. It's a fancy term that means the study of knowledge. How do we know what we know? Well, Today, in post-modernity, the laws of logic are under attack. And I mentioned the problem with that view is God created the laws of logic. Even if we don't know them, we still use them. How many times have you tried to walk out the wall? You know, you don't see people do that. You go out the door. Why? Because the law of non-contradiction says there's a difference between the wall and the door. You stop at a red light and you go at green lights. Without the law of non-contradiction, we can't distinguish between categories. And so... Oh, I'm sorry, my microphone is not working. Let's see here. Should I just get it closer? I'll get it closer. How's that? Bob's going to juice me up here. Okay, good. I just had it too far down my tie. Very good. So you can't even read the Bible or any literature without the laws of logic. So we want to win on that one. The second one was the basic reliability of sense perception. Do you remember that I showed you how Immanuel Kant in 1781 claimed that no human being, because of our imprecise sense perceptions, has access to the truth? And again, that's the postmodern view. Not that truth doesn't exist, but that we as fallible humans don't have access to it. The third category that we're going to win on, and this is the one we're going to cover today, is that the author grounds the meaning of the text and meaning can be conveyed by language. Some years ago, Bob had rebuked a thinker named Brian McLaren, and he is a postmodern, I hate to use the term theologian, I use that very loosely. He's a postmodern heretic, is what he is. But Bob had referred to him as the little engine that can't. And the idea is, I think I can't, I think I can't. That's the postmodern view, because no one has access to truth, Because you and I can't interpret anything in a perfect way, they argue that nothing, no truth can ever be conveyed in language. And so it is a movement of despair. Now, where does that lead us? Because you can't know anything through language, what they use this for in the Marxist camp is that they say, well, every doctrine in America or in the church is merely a power play by those who are in authority. And so they are the haves, and we have to jettison everything that the haves believe because it's not valid anyway. They can't know the truth, and we have to let the have-nots have their say. That's the revolution that they want. And because language cannot convey truth, they feel free to reimagine their own truth. That's the idea. Marxism? It is. And I'll show you Jacques Derrida, the philosopher. We'll come to talk about him again today. He was a Marxist who was the, really the founder of the deconstructionist movement. And I'll kind of show you why. He, deconstruction itself isn't part of Marxism, but 
in the 20th century, Marxists started using it. They, they found it was a worthwhile tool, and so that's what I'll show you. So anyway, that's what I think is kind of the dominant religion of the day, those who deny these three categories. Now remember, I'm just going to give you a review. We've already covered these slides, but I want you to remember that I had talked about how Tertullian, Tertullian, the famous Christian apologist, said, what does Athens have to do with Jerusalem? And the idea that he had was, why are we mixing philosophy with biblical Christianity? Well, my goal isn't to do that other than to say that the laws of logic, again, are something that God created, and they're inherent to the biblical text. And so I showed you the various laws of logic. And then what we did is we looked at Scripture, and we said, look, in 1 Corinthians 15, the resurrection exists. A is not the same as non-A. The resurrection does not exist. And so logic is found all through the scriptures. We also looked at the case where the Sadducees denied the resurrection, and we saw logic in Matthew 22, where the law of excluded middle applied. You're either alive or you're not alive. There's no other third option. And the idea that Jesus mentioned is that, hey, you know what? The God of heaven and earth is not the God of three dead men, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's the God of the living. And so we see that just implicitly, the laws of logic are all over Scripture. Next, we looked at the basic reliability of sense perception. I mentioned how Immanuel Kant and his critique of pure reason, that was the book that he wrote in 1781. He said, because human beings' sense perceptions are not perfect, and because you and I are biased, here's his conclusion, people are stuck in the phenomenal world and cannot access the noumenal world. That is the foundation, in my opinion, of post-modernity. Right there, that statement, from Immanuel Kant in 1781. The phenomenal world is the world as it appears. The noumenal world, as he uses it, as the world as it really is. So think of it this way. If you think about a phenomenon or phenomenal, sometimes they'll talk about phenomenological language. You'll hear the weatherman say that the sun is going to rise at 6.52 tomorrow morning. And I know it's earlier than that now, but I'm just giving an example. Well, do you ever call the TV station and say, hey, what are you, some sort of geocentrist? Do you think the, everything revolves around the earth? Don't you know that the earth is rotating? It's not sunrise. Well, you know you don't call him and say that because you know he knows that. He's talking in a phenomenological language as it appears. It appears that the sun is rising. And so it's okay to say sunrise at 6.52. And we know that the weatherman realizes that the earth is rotating. Are you with me? What Immanuel Kant is saying is that we always can talk about the way it appears, but never the way it is. And that is what's being built upon by the postmodern movement. All the philosophers then on, in a sense have tangled or toyed with this idea that truth may be out there, but we don't have access to it. Uh, yes, Scott, we'll get a microphone for you. I just, you usually add the fact that, hey, how can he know that? <laughs> it is exactly right. We mentioned that last time, right? I, that's a very good point, Scott. Thank you. It's a self-refuting argument. Immanuel Kant, the reason we shouldn't take it seriously is because it's self-refuting. He's saying the real world is such that you can't know the real world. Well, if he's right, he's just proven himself wrong. He can't know that. So he's making assertions saying that this is the way the real world is while he's saying that you can't know the real world. So it's an absurdity at the outset. Um, Bob and I have talked about Norman Geisler, the famous Christian apologist, who argued that, yes, the laws of logic are valid whether you believe them or not. And he said one time, he said, when people try to get rid of the law of non-contradiction, ironically, they have to use it in order to get rid of it. If someone were to say, I don't believe in the law of non-contradiction, and you say, oh, you do believe in the law of non-contradiction, they will correct you and say, well, no, I don't believe in the law of non-contradiction. Oh, you do believe in the law of non-contradiction. They'll keep correcting you until maybe that'll dawn on them. They can't believe it and not believe it at the same time and in the same relationship. They've had to use the law of non-contradiction even to argue with you. So the point is that these things are inherent. The idea behind Immanuel Kant's, his kind of what I'd say is despair, I think is really just folly. And therefore, we as Christians have to be post 
postmodern. That's what I would argue from. So I showed you the basic reliability of sense perception because that was under attack by Immanuel Kant. Remember 1 John 1, 1? He said, what was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The apostles testified based on their sense perceptions as to who Christ was and as to what he did. And so certainly if the sense perceptions were valid to the apostles, they should be valid to us. And so we shouldn't despair. Yes, the very testimony of Christ himself was dependent upon the sense perceptions of those who saw him. Turn your Bibles to Hebrews 2, 1 through 4. I was going to give you another passage. I don't know if I gave you this last time. But Hebrews 2, 1 through 4. Again, we're just doing some review, and then we'll get into where we left off. Hebrews 2, 1 through 4. I just want you to see another passage where sense perceptions are understood to be valid and that the apostles use them to testify of Christ. Hebrews 2, 1 through 4, the writer of Hebrews says, For this reason, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard so that we do not drift away from it. For if the word spoken through angels proved unalterable and every transgression and disobedience received a just penalty, how will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? Now, let me stop there for just a moment. The argument that the writer of Hebrews is making is if those under the old covenant if they perished by rebelling against God, how much greater culpability is there upon us under the new covenant because we've seen even greater revelation and even greater evidence. And so he says, after it was at the first spoken through the Lord, it was confirmed to us by those who heard. Now stop there. Who is it that, who are those that heard? It's the apostles. And so the apostles, again, were using their sense perceptions. It says in verse 4, God also testifying with them both by signs and wonders and by various miracles and by the gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his own will. So, dear ones, you and I can know truth. Our sense perceptions are basically reliable. So that's our second category. Now we're going to come to our third one. And to me, this is kind of the coup de grace, or as my brother likes to say, the coup de grace. It is the battle over who grounds the meaning of the text, the author or the reader. And this, when I was in seminary, it was somewhat revolutionary to even debate the issue. I've always assumed, I guess, that the text meant what it said and that it was our job as the interpreter to try to understand what the text was saying. I didn't know that was even open to debate. So I get into seminary and I realize that there's a whole class of thought out there, post-modernity, which says, no, the reader defines the meaning. I want to show you a proponent of this from the 20th century was a man named Jacques Derrida. Jacques Derrida is a proponent. Ultimately, this is his big sin, in my opinion, as he claims that the reader defines the meaning of the text. Now, this thought that the reader defines the meaning went from Europe and infiltrated academia in the United States, and really it's the predominant view today, that the reader defines the meaning, that the author does not ground it. Now, remember, I want to talk to you about the absurdity of Jacques Derrida's axioms. He has three axioms. And the reason this is important is Jacques Derrida stands behind the critical theory that you see today. And remember, critical theory stands as an umbrella, and there's many critical theories under it, like critical law theory, critical race theory, critical ethical theory. There's all sorts of critical theories. So when you have parents going to PTA meetings and they're addressing perhaps their school board, what you're going to find out is that this is at the root of it all, that it's Jacques Derrida. And the people who are running the school boards, they don't know this. So let's go through the three axioms of Jacques Derrida. First axiom, if you recall from last time, was that everything can be given at least two equally cogent explanations. That's That's axiom one. Now, why he says that, I don't know. I... He's very opaque in his writings, um, but that's his first axiom. The second axiom is what I really took issue with, and that is, he says, in the temporal process of thinking about anything, one explanation collapses into its contrary. Now, that is a contradiction. So, 
again, let's think about the parents that are going to the school board meeting and the school board doesn't understand Jacques Derrida, the roots of critical race theory. What's ironic is it's the school board, for example, that demands that you wear a mask. Well, under the second axiom of Jacques Derrida in their critical theory, not wearing a mask is the same as wearing a mask. Are you with me? And so it's an absurdity, but it comes right from Jacques Derrida's axiom that they're teaching. And so it's an absurd doctrine, is it not? The third one, this is his third axiom. I didn't get to this, so this is the new one. The third axiom was that this entire process occurs within a linguistic, semiotic structure of thought. Now, what is semiotics? Well, semiotics is something that this guy made up, Jacques Derrida. Semiotics, it's, it's something as a field of study now, but it's a, a phrase that he coined, and it's, he says that semiotics is the study of signs and symbols and their relationship to our creation of meaning. So the idea is that because this sign and this sign, and you put them all together in language, creates meaning, because you and I are biased, because our sense perceptions aren't perfect, because we have certain backgrounds, we're always going to read into it subjectively and never come to the truth as it is. And so to Jacques Derrida, it's meaningless signs and you can come up with any interpretation you want. In fact, let me read you from the Encyclopedia on Philosophy. This is what they say about the distinction between what we believe, we're often called structuralist, and what Jacques Derrida believed. They said, quote, Structuralists, that would be us, foundationalists, believe that after a proper investigation of your subject matter, linguistics, anthropology, or whatever you're studying, you can attain meaning and understanding by revealing the structural relationships of the concepts and ideas and their real-world counterparts under consideration. This understanding is expressed in words with definite meanings put forth in speaking or writing. They go on to say, this was challenged by Jacques Derrida, who maintained that references associated with words are so numerous and even contradictory that any explanation, view, or text can be deconstructed to show that whatever you might have thought that the text was saying, you could find that it said something else as well, and therefore there was no privileged interpretation, no canonical reading to which you will be forced to adhere. Do you see what Jacques Derrida is teaching is a despair that you can ever come to a true interpretation. And therefore, if the power brokers, those who are in power, those who are in academia in the 1960s were viewed as those in power, they have to be overthrown because, after all, they're the haves, and we have to bring in the interpretation of the have-nots. That's how the Marxists have taken and run with this. And so what Jacques Derrida is doing is, like Immanuel Kant, he is despairing that you can know anything from language. That's exactly what Brian McLaren was teaching that Bob rebuked, the little engine that couldn't. I can't know this, I can't know that, who can know? And therefore, by and large, what the emergence did is they reimagined God. They got rid of knowing God through the inspiration of Scripture and they started knowing him through the imaginations of their mind. And that was the wholesale. So they, they had a God of their own making then. Now, what we see then is, yes, the reader defines the meaning of the text, and so this is the basis of Marxist critical theory. And again, I don't think Karl Marx believed this. This isn't a tenant of his. But men like Jacques Derrida, who were committed Marxists, they said, you know, the problem with the Soviet Union is that they tried to fight the United States on the physical battlefield when what they should have done is break down the narrative. They should have deconstructed knowledge within the institutions within the United States. And so that's precisely what you are seeing today in critical theory. Again, critical theory builds off of Kant. It builds off of Hegel and Jacques Derrida. And the idea is since history, since ethics, since law is always created by the winners, those who are in power, what the Marxists would call the haves or the bourgeoisie, that has to be overthrown and and the people who are the have-nots, the proletariat, have to be given the chance in the reins of power. 
And so that's what you're seeing in the institutions today. The institutions are being overthrown because, after all, truth can't be known anyway. That's what you're seeing, the destruction of ethics and all these things. In fact, let me just cite this. In 1993, Derrida wrote a book called The Specters of Marx. And there, Jacques Derrida actually blamed both world wars and totalitarianism on the free market. That's what kind of Marxist he was. So why did we have two world wars? Why did we have this battle with the Soviet Union? Why do we have the problem of totalitarianism? Because people are free in the free market to buy and sell goods as they see fit. That was his argument. Now, why am I citing that? I'm trying to show you that it's precisely Marxism that is using post-modernity. Marxism is the dominant religion of the day. It is the ethos of the age. It is the doctrine, the dogma of the demons that we confront. Amen. That's what we're dealing with. And so it's the deconstruction movement that is just a weapon that the Marxists are using. That's right. Now, what's very interesting is this deconstruction movement, I have it written down here. If you think about it, you can't know history, you can't know ethics, you can't know law, and you can't know God, certainly, from the Bible. And so if this is true, then what are they able to do? They're able to reimagine their own set of ethics, their own set of laws, their own sense of history. Remember there was that famous Soviet dissident, Solzhenitsyn, and he had a famous saying. He said, you know, in Russia, the future is known. It's the past that keeps changing. (laughs) The the future was known. It was always going to be bleak. It was always going to be bleak, but it was the past that kept changing because they kept rewriting history to show Marxism and Leninism and Stalinism to be the heroic movement that it really never was. In fact, there was a famous photo. I think it was Stalin and Trotsky and then someone else. There were three of them. I forget what the other communist was. Maybe it was Lenin. I don't know. Well, he died fairly early. But anyway, Trotsky, he ends up falling in disfavor with the communists, so he's erased from the photo but they weren't very good at Photoshop back then, so you still see his two feet. <laughs> so there's a picture of three commies. One of them Stalin, one was Trotsky, but he's out. So all you do is see his feet in the picture. The past kept changing. Dear ones, that's exactly what Marxism seeks to do. So how does that involve critical race theory? Well, think of it this way. Remember in the 1900s, the early 20th century, Marxism comes to the United States, and the problem with breaking the haves and the have-nots between the business owner and the worker is the business owner and the workers... Now, I'm not saying that there weren't fits and problems, but they got along, by and large, too well. So the Marxists realized, how are we going to break people into the proletariat and the bourgeoisie? The the proletariat's the have-nots, the bourgeoisie are the haves. Well, they thought, hey, this divide between business owner and worker isn't working... Let's start breaking people down according to race and according to gender. And so that was the movement, and that's precisely what we see today. The idea is in critical race theory, because the white people are deemed the ones who are in power, what you have to do is jettison their thinking and put in the thinking of those who come from typically third world nations. That was the idea. Jettison those who are in power and substitute it for something else. Why? Because after all, white people, they can't know truth. And so someone else's opinion is going to be just as valid. So anything that happened to be true, and by the way, just because someone is white doesn't mean they're right. But the idea is, if they are right, why jettison their ideas? The issue for Americans should not be whether it's right, or excuse me, whether it's white or it's some other color, but whether it's right or wrong, whether it's true or false. That's the doctrine. So that's what we're seeing. Now, in left-wing seminaries, what did they do with this? What they did with it is they said, you can't know your Bible. And those who say that, thus saith the Lord, and they come up with an interpretation, they're lying to you because of the interpreter is so biased and so fallible, they can never come to a valid interpretation. So the left-wing seminaries thought, well, we can just reimagine a God that we like better. And lo and behold, they imagine a God who's not bringing people to judgment, but sucking all things into himself. And one day there's going to be a grand utopia, no judgment, 
We don't have to have heaven or hell. Um, when I was at seminary, the first words I heard from Doug Paget, a famous postmodern theologian, again, I use theologian loosely, he said, we have to stop binary thinking now, or binary reductionism now is what he said. Yeah, Scott. So that's, is this working? Oh. Um, so that's all from the garden again. Yes, it all goes back to the garden <laughs> where the lie is, did God really say that? Yeah. And then you will be like God, knowing the difference between determine good and evil. good and evil for yourself. That's right. Putting disrepute upon God's word. Can you really know that? Uh, remember, one of the false things that Satan said in the garden was, you can't eat of every tree? Well, no. Remember, he was corrected by Eve. It's actually just one tree that we can't eat of. So he was distorting the scripture. And then he brings disrepute upon God's word saying, isn't that outrageous? So yes, and then the final, the final temptation is to be like God. And that's exactly what this type of thinking leads to. You can be your own God, determining for yourself your own ethics, your own morality, your own law, your own history, etc., etc. Now, what I want you to see is that there was a man, he's still alive, by the way, he's 94 years old. His name is E.D. Hirsch. And I don't think E.D. Hirsch was ever even a Christian. I don't know that he is or isn't, but he was in the secular realm, and he stood for the author defines the meaning of the text. Both Bob and I, when we were in seminary, we had to have a book by E.D. Hirsch called The Validity of Interpretation. And what E.D. Hirsch stood for was that, yes, through understanding the linguistics, the grammar, the syntax, you can understand what an author has said, and it is immoral because the author has ownership over his words or her words, it is immoral to read into those words something that wasn't there. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to show you that this is inherent to the biblical writers. I'm going to show you a passage in 2 Peter 1 that you and I can prove that the author grounds the meaning of the text through a great passage in 2 Peter chapter 1. So think about it. The biblical writers are the ones who ground the meaning of the text. And the biblical writers have their authority in the text from God himself. Who's the ultimate authority of Scripture? The ultimate author? God himself. He is the author. Think about it. We see this in the originalist of the Supreme Court. What's the debate? Does the reader define the meaning? Or does the author? Think about, um, I was in a debate, kind of an informal one, just at a workout place down in Florida on vacation a few years ago. I ended up debating a woman named Barbara who didn't think that the Second Amendment applied to the individual. Wasn't it interesting, in the Second Amendment, the phrase, the right of the people, it occurs five times in our Bill of Rights as Americans in the law. And every time, it has to do with an individual right, the right to peacefully assemble and have redress of grievances. That's for the right of the people. Uh, the Fourth Amendment, we have the right to be secure against seizures and uh, unreasonable searches, that's an ind individual right. But all of a sudden they come to the Second Amendment and, they, and when it says the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed, they say, well, that's not an individual right. Well, based on what hermeneutic principle? Based on the fact that they don't like it and Jacques Derrida told them that they can deconstruct it. That's the issue. And so because they don't like it, they can read in, as Jacques Derrida told them, rights that were never there, the right to abortion. Where does it say the right of the people to abort babies shall not be infringed? But they find that right. So I'm just showing you in language, this is everywhere. But the most important thing is it's attacking the Bible. And so what I'm going to show you is that when you and I come to an Embers or a Perkins, we can sit down with people and show them biblically that know the author is the one who grounds the meaning of the text. And so I want to begin in 2 Peter 1 and show you how this passage is just magnificent in doing so. Let me set the setting. As Peter was writing both First and Second Peter, he was addressing false teachers. He was addressing Christians, but the Christians were under attack by false teachers in Asia Minor. And the central thesis of the false teachers was this. The false teachers in Asia Minor said the apostles misinterpreted the prophetic texts of the Old Testament, and they are wrong in that Jesus is coming again. They claim that the false teachers claim that he's not coming again, and therefore, because he's not coming again, you can live any way you want. That was their central battle. So central to the issue was, 
Who is interpreting the Old Testament prophecies correct? The apostles or the heretics, these false teachers? And so very interesting. I want to show you that this is the issue. Notice, turn your Bibles, if you will. I want to set this issue up. 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. 2 Peter 3, 1 through 4. And again, as you're turning to this, what we're showing now is that in the Word of God itself, we're going to build the case that the author grounds the meaning of any text and that the ultimate author of Scripture is God. So let's begin here. I want you to see what the issue was. What was the big debate in 2 Peter? 2 Peter 3, 1 through 4. Peter says, This is now, beloved, the second letter I am writing to you in which I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior spoken by your apostles. Know this, first of all, that in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lust. No, notice, notice verse 4. And saying, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. Does everyone see what the issue was? Where is his coming? He's not coming again. You guys, you guys misinterpreted, you apostles, the Old Testament prophets. You didn't get it right. So now how is Peter going to prove that no, they did have the proper interpretation? What he's going to do is he's going to appeal to the experience that Peter, James, and John had on the Mount of Transfiguration where God authenticated verbally that they had precisely the right interpretation. Listen to what he does. Turn your Bibles. Oh, no, I'm sorry. I'm going to have it on the screen. Never mind. I keep wanting you to turn your Bibles somewhere. 2 Peter 1, 16 through 18. Let's read this. So here's Peter's answer to the problem. He said, for we, that's, again, the we, by the way, are the apostles, right? For we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, such an utterance as this was made to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. And we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven, when we are with him on the holy mountain. Now, the first thing I want to point out is I want you to see, I'm going to pull up my pointer. So hope I don't shut my computer off. There we go. Notice it says, for we did not follow cleverly devised tales, right? When we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's ask ourselves the question, which coming is he referring to? Well, what's very interesting is the term parousia is used here. And any time the term parousia is used with reference to Christ and his coming, it is reserved for the second coming. In fact, even the Theological Dictionary of the New Testament, hardly a dispensational source, said that so imminent was the thinking of Christ's return in the New Testament writer's doctrine that when they used the term parousia, they never used it with Christ's first coming. They reserved it for the second coming, lest you confuse the two. So anytime you see the parousia and it's referring to a coming of Christ, it is always, and I say again, always, 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 it's referring to the second coming. That's how it's being used here. And as I showed you from 2 Peter 3, that was the issue. The false teacher said he's not coming again. So what he's saying, the apostle Peter, is that they made known the coming, the second coming of Christ in fact, they were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Now, notice in 17, we have an explanatory four. Anytime you see a four, you should ask, what's it there for? All right. Well, he says, for when he... Now, where is this setting? It's on the Mount of Transfiguration. So he's explaining what happened on the Mount of Transfiguration. He says, for when he, that's Christ, received honor and glory from God the Father... Such an utterance, this is speech from the Father, as this was made to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Now, why is it so significant where he says, notice down here in blue, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Well, there's two texts of Scripture that are blended together. It's Isaiah 42.1 in Psalm 2.7. And we're going to look at these in just a moment. 
In fact, turn your Bibles, if you will, to Isaiah 42.1. But when you unpack both of these, the ultimate fulfillment of these, there's a preliminary fulfillment at Christ's ministry, but the ultimate fulfillment, as you will see, is in the second coming in the millennial reign of Christ. And so what happens then is on the Mount of Transfiguration, what we have is a foreshadowing of the parousia. It is a down payment of the coming of Christ, where the apostles Peter, James, and John are being shown a foreshadowing of what it will be like at the parousia of Christ, at his return. So that's why the blending of these two texts is so important. Notice Isaiah 42.1. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom my soul delights. That's very similar to the phrase in whom I'm well pleased. Notice he says, I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. Well, what's the argument between the false teachers in Asia Minor and Peter? Peter's saying that Jesus Christ is going to return to bring justice to the nations. The false teachers are saying, no, he's not. You can live any way you want. So Isaiah 42.1 proves that if Messiah is the fulfillment of that, he has to come again to bring justice to the nations. That's the argument, I think, inherent in Peter's mind. Now, blend that with Psalm 2.7. What is Psalm 2 all about? Psalm 2, turn your Bibles to Psalm 2.7. It is all about the whole earth taking their stand against the Lord and his anointed. But God with his Messiah will overthrow them and the sun will reign upon the earth. Notice it says, we'll look at Psalm 2.7 and verse 8. Psalm 2, 7 through verse 8. This is part of the quotation here on the Mount of Transfiguration. Notice God says, I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. So this is Trinitarian language. I believe this is ultimately the Messiah. He says, today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possession. Is Christ right now reigning upon the earth? Has he brought justice to the earth? No. So the idea is he has to return a second time. That interpretation of the Old Testament was authenticated on the Mount of Transfiguration. Let me tell you a story. What the apostles are really saying is we were there. We were there. And we heard God himself cite these verses, verifying that Christ is coming a second time. The power of the testimony. Yes, Laverne, we get a, we'll, get a, uh, we'll get a microphone to you. Peter, on the Mount of Transfiguration, actually said to the Lord... It's good for us to be here. Let's make three tabernacles. Yes. Which means, if I'm interpreting it correctly, yes. Because Christ was glowing, he thought, perhaps, let's not go through this thing that you want to do, go and be slain and, and, and all that. But you're glowing right now. And the tabernacles relate to the fact that in the new kingdom, the mount, the tabernacle celebration will be restored. So was he getting ahead of God? And that's when God interrupted and said, this is my beloved son, hear ye Yeah, him. Yeah, exactly. You know what? I don't know what was in his mind. What we do know is this. In Peter's mind, we know from the biblical writers that he didn't know what he was talking about. Because the text actually says, in fact, it says that and Peter didn't know what he was saying. So what he's asking for is something that was illegitimate. And right away, the two tabernacle idea goes out the window for Moses and Elijah because Moses and Elijah are no longer seen. And then there's Christ alone, and then you have the confession from heaven, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. And so the idea then is it's this confession of Jesus as the son who must come back and rule and reign. Now, what's very interesting in the context, for example, of Matthew, and we'll be coming to this, uh, turn your Bibles ahead to Matthew 16. Verses 27 through 28. I'm going to show you that, in fact, the writers, all the synoptic writers see this as a foreshadowing of Christ coming in his glory. Yeah, Steve. I, I love how the Lord, his answer to so many dilemmas is, oh, by the way, I'm here. I'm standing right in front of you. Yes. And 
by the way, my promises are true, and I'm, they're going to, you know, he, he proclaims his promises, and he says, I'm right in here, and listen to me. That was, that was his answers to so many things, and they're, they're, we're sitting here fighting over this, yeah. that, and the other thing, and it's just nonsense. Right. Well said. He's validated the interpretation by the apostles. Well said. And we don't have to fight over it. Amen. What's a little surprising to me is why, why does he leave off the phrase that God said when he said, said this? He said, listen to him. I'm sorry. Where, where are you now? You're right here? Yeah. Yeah. Didn't, didn't he... Didn't the father say, listen to him? After yeah, that? absolutely. In fact, um, Why didn't that's a citation De- from Deuteronomy 18.15. What's significant about that is Deuteronomy 18.15 proves that Jesus is the prophet that Moses had foretold of. What's interesting about Peter leaving that off is for his purpose with the false teachers, the issue is the coming of Christ, the second coming. That wasn't it's, it's, everything's relevant, but that wasn't the most pertinent issue. The most pertinent issue was this right to come and rule and reign over the nations, which both Isaiah 42 and Psalm 2-7 affirm. That's why I think Peter is crafting it the way he is. But again, he's really recalling this, this event as it occurred. He's just, um, you know, if you ever had a car accident scene, someone will say it's a red car. Someone else will say it was a four-door. Well, they're not contradictory. It can be a red four-door. So my point is, I don't think he's negating that that was spoken, but he's just accenting the issue that the false teachers need to be reprimanded on. Now, here's what I want to show you. Notice Matthew 16, 27 through 28. Remember, this is the confession at Caesarea Philippi. Peter had confessed that Jesus is the Christ. But notice how Christ, Jesus says that he's going to go have to suffer. Notice this, for the Son of Man is going to come into his glory of his Father with his angels and, now here's a citation from Psalm 62, 12, he will then repay every man according to his deeds. Notice verse 28. Truly I say to you, there are some of those who are standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Do you know how important it is to get this right? Do you know, how many, do you know what a preterist is? A preterist is one who says, all of the second coming prophecies were fulfilled in 70 AD. And they use this very text to try to prove it. They will beat you over the head with it, so be prepared. Because they will say, hey, Jesus himself said that there was those who were standing there, his apostles, who would not taste death until they say the, saw the Lord coming in his kingdom. And they said, wait a minute, the apostles were all dead by 95 AD or shortly thereafter. And so therefore it had to happen within 70 AD. Well, what's interesting is in every synoptic account, as soon as that phrase is said, some are not are standing here will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom, immediately comes the transfiguration. Immediately. So the transfiguration, we know, is a foreshadowing of the parousia. Why? Because that's what the biblical writers are showing us. It is a foreshadowing of Christ coming in his kingdom. So do you understand then the power of what Peter is saying is, you false teachers in Asia Minor, don't tell us that we have the wrong interpretation. We were there. Years ago, my grandpa was a tank driver in Patton's Third Army. He was in four major battles. Remember, he was in Normandy, the Battle of France, the Hurkin Forest, and then the Battle of the Bulge. He drove a tank destroyer. And what was very interesting is after the war, he spoke Frisian Dutch. He was a Dutchman. Bob and I are both Dutch. And because he could speak Frisian Dutch, it was close to German. They kept him on as an interpreter to investigate some of the death camps and so forth. So he had to see some of the death camps, the concentration camps, and he saw the bodies stacked up like cordwood. Fast forward, he gets out of the wards years later, and he's a bricklayer. And as he's laying brick, there's a family friend very dear to him. But his family friend starts telling him that the Holocaust was made up, that it never happened. And my grandpa was a very calm man. I've never seen him very agitated or angry. But he told the story. He looked at his friend. He said, Jack, if you ever want to work with me and you ever want to remain friends again, you're going to change your view. He says, I was there. I saw the body stacked up like cordwood. I smelled it for miles away. I was there. Don't tell me it didn't happen. That's exactly the power of what Peter is saying is, don't you tell me, an apostle, that Christ isn't coming again. I was there. 
And God himself from heaven gave the confirmation through these cited passages that Christ is going to have to return and reign again. Isn't it interesting, in all the synoptic gospels, right after, again, the call that some will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom and in his glory, comes the transfiguration. All of this is showing us that this is a foreshadowing of the parousia. Yes, Eric. Yeah, and actually this goes right into this other thing. Uh, As we talk to unbelievers, no person will die for something that they know to be a lie. Okay, And so these apostles, they were eyewitnesses. They knew, okay? Now, I can be totally willing to die for something because I'm too stupid, and I've believed some lie. Right, we can be mistaken. You know, I can be mistaken. Yep. But these guys were not mistaken. No. And they were willing to die. And that is a testimony we have to remember. Because that is one of the biggest proofs of the truth of the gospel. Yes. Amen. Well said. As you said that, I was thinking about in John 7, where, remember, Jesus' own brothers are goading him to go up to Jerusalem. Hey, if you're, if you're the Messiah, why don't you go show yourselves publicly? And it says in a parenthetical, for his own brothers did not believe. And yet after the resurrection, James ends up being clubbed to death. They end up being martyred knowing that their brother was, in fact, the Messiah. The apostles, all of them murdered for the sake of Christ. And again, do you do that for a knowing lie? Again, the argument is maybe they were mistaken, but they certainly, they believed it was real. And again, the evidence is certainly on their side. So yeah, great, great point, Eric. Yeah, is somebody else over here? I'm sorry, I thought I saw, no, we're good. Um, one more fact I want to point out to prove that this is a foreshadowing of the parousia and the transfiguration. Laverne had alluded to it. Who was on the mountain with Christ? Moses and Elijah. Right. When does the Moses and Elijah show up again in, the, in our Bible? In Revelation. Revelation chapter 11, exactly. And that's within the 70th week. And the 70th week is the parousia. It's the parousia of Christ. And so who shows up at the midpoint of the parousia but Moses and Elijah? So they are going to show up again. So what we have on the Mount of Transfiguration is a down payment a foreshadowing of the parousia of Christ. And so as the apostles saying, hey, wait a minute, you false teachers are telling us that Christ isn't coming again. We saw the foreshadowing. We saw the warm-up act to it. And we had our interpretation confirmed by God in heaven. And so that's why he says, we ourselves. Notice it's an adjectival intensive. Do you remember, and uh, try to give the power of this. First, Thessalonians 4, 13 through 17, right in there. <laughs> when you can't remember the specific verse, give the range. Do you remember it says, the Lord himself will descend? I think that's 4.16. The Lord himself descends with the shout of the archangel, the trumpet of God. When it says the Lord himself, it's what's called an adjectival intensive. What that means is it's no surrogate. It's not a stunt double. It's not someone who's going to come like an angel that Christ sends delegated it's Christ himself. And so the apostles are laboring the point that it's we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. Now, notice the inference then that he draws from this, verses 19 through 21. He says, so we have the prophetic word made more sure to which you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a place excuse me, in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. But know this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. Now, the first thing I want to deal with here in this text is there is a debate in this text among Christians as to whether this term interpretation is really the issue was the interpretation of the Old Testament or whether it had to do with the origin of the Old Testament. But I'm going to prove to you, I think, conclusively that it had to do with the interpretation. Now, I want to read to you here that this transfiguration event then authenticated the apostles' interpretation of Scripture because the experience was a warm-up act of the parousia. That's what it was. 
So that's what he's saying. So he says, so we have the prophetic word made more sure. What does that mean? That we have the prophetic word made more sure. There are some, like if you have a MacArthur study Bible, and by the way, I bought my son a MacArthur study Bible. I love it. If you look up the notes of that, they believe in the, or, the issue is not the interpretation of Scripture, but the origin of it. They will claim that what it means that the prophetic word was made more sure was that the Scriptures are more valid, or I should say they are more readily uh, true or valid than experience. And so that's a note that I don't think has any bearing on what this text is about. What Peter is saying, dear ones, is that the reason the prophetic word was made more sure is because the apostles had their interpretation validated. So again, Peter isn't pitting experience versus scripture. That's not the issue. The issue is do the apostles have the correct interpretation? Well, he said we were there. So if we were there and God spoke saying, yes, you have the right interpretation, so we have the prophetic word made more sure. It's sure in that sense, not in the sense that experience is less valid than Scripture or Scripture more valid. That's not his point. His point is that their interpretation was made valid so that they knew that they knew that they knew that they had it right. Uh, Barb, we'll grab the microphone and bring it to Barb. Thanks, Carly. So this really shows the importance of, of looking at Scripture, um, be, you know, reading um, previously to what... Um, I'm trying to explain this. I'm not yeah, very good at explaining. Yeah, contextually, what are yes, the issues? You have yeah. to, there's a lot of information before a certain verse that a person has to look at and read and understand because, yes, context, but you have to go back a ways. Like, um, like even last week when Bob was talking about the, you know, um, Luke and Acts and um, how so many of these um, scripture uh, stories or um, activities are all related. So there will be people who will say, um, when no prophecy was ever made by act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. Well, yes. there's a lot of people who think the Holy Spirit talks to them and tells them all sorts of stuff, you know. Right. But that's not, you can't just take that verse separately. You have to look at really what came before, and there's quite a bit. And so it's kind of... the we, the apostles. Yeah, so Amen. I really appreciate you, exp- you know, explaining this, Barb, that how important you. it is to um, look at the whole context prior to, and it might go quite a ways, you know, before that. In fact, I think you're right in 2 Peter, it's the whole book. The whole book is important. In fact, I'll show you some cross-references later that show exactly what you're saying. You're exactly right. Um, Let's keep working through this text a little bit. Isn't it interesting? We'll do it in the last five minutes here. He says, notice to which you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place. In Psalm 119, isn't the... Scripture of God likened to a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. So that's the relevance. The Scriptures, we don't have anything else. Christ is not reigning here and now physically on earth as he will in the millennial kingdom. What do we have? We have this lamp shining in a dark place. We have the Scriptures. But notice there's an until. Haos in the Greek. Until, or I, I think it's that, until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. Now, what is this idea of the day dawning and the morning star rising? The ancients thought that the morning star was actually Venus, but I think this is probably an allusion all the way back to Numbers 2417. Remember the Balaamic prophecy from Balaam, where the star from Jacob would arise and he would crush all of his enemies? Well, it's very interesting. Turn your Bibles to Revelation chapter 2. Excuse me, let's go to, just for the sake of time, Revelation 22.16. Revelation 22.16, you're going to see Jesus refers to himself as the morning star. So we're going to have a replacement of light. The scriptures as a lamp unto our feet, as it were, are going to be replaced by the morning star who's going to give us illumination. Revelation 22.16, this is Jesus, the very end of Revelation. He says, I, Jesus have sent my angel to testify to you these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. So Jesus, when he returns, is like that morning star. Why? Because he is the arrival of the new day. 
the messianic day, the messianic age that will rule and reign forevermore. And so what Peter is saying is we have to pay good attention to the scriptures that are like a lamp shining in the dark place until the Messiah returns and he becomes our fullest revelation. That's what he's showing us. Now he says, but know this first of all, that no prophecy of scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. We're going to talk next week. We'll, we'll continue this about the term interpretation. It's apoleusis. And that term, what I'll show you from Mark 4.34, from Acts 19.39, and from Genesis chapter 40 and 41, is it always means interpretation. And so what you're going to see, and I'll just give you a foreshadowing of how we're going to go, and I'll come to you, Brian, is that no one's entitled to their own interpretation. Think about this in our postmodern world. Why? Because God is ultimately the author. We have a text in the scriptures themselves that says the author grounds the meaning of the text. Do you know how powerful that is to take it to at least someone who says that they are a Christian and who is duped by that the postmodern culture says the reader defines the meaning? We can sit down with them at an Embers or a restaurant and say, well, it's interesting. You're going to a church that believes the reader defines the meaning because God's word says that the author does. Why is no one entitled to their own interpretation? For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved. This is what, by the way, B.B. Warfield called concursus. Yes, men wrote, but they were moved by God, the third person, the Holy Spirit. They were moved by the Holy Spirit. They spoke from God. God is the author. And that's why you can't just come up with any old interpretation. It has to correspond to what the author has grounded. And that author who is God authenticated the proper interpretation through his apostles. So if there's one text in all of the Bible, dear brothers and sisters, that proves the author grounds the meaning of the text, that's 2 Peter chapter 1. Um, yeah, Brian. I'm just going to throw this out there on a yeah. the limb here. Could you make a connection between the lamp shining in a dark place to God giving the Jews the menorah? The menorah then being the, the, the center candle, being the light uh, representing the Messiah. What do you think about that? Yeah, you know, it's, it's a... Um it's, it's a metaphor, and so the lamp is often... Think about living in sin is often... You know, the, the analogy is that we're living in darkness, and God's word is the light. And so we just have to take the metaphors as they come. So the lamp, the scriptures are often likened to a lamp, again, shining upon our feet. It's a light unto our path, um, Psalm 119. And so that's the idea, is that the scriptures, we do well to pay attention to that. Why? Otherwise, we're in darkness. But one day, the morning star comes. And then he's going to be our direct revelation. Bob, sometimes people ask questions that we can't know. And Bob often says, we'll ask Jesus then in the millennial kingdom. He'll tell us, right? What kind of worship are we going to be doing in the millennial kingdom? Well, Jesus will tell us, you know. But the, the big issue is that he's saying, hey, you do well to pay attention to this. Later on, as we, we'll just go through a few slides next time. But you'll see that these false teachers, they distorted the scriptures, and the term distort means that they misinterpreted them. Remember, they did to Paul's writings as they do the rest of the scriptures. They distorted them. So that was the issue. They were distorting them, but they ought not to do that. They ought to listen to the interpretation of the apostles. Yes, yeah. Levon. Um, could you please tell me again what was the three verses that you gave me for using one's own interpretation? Acts nineteen thirty nine and Genesis Yes, something? we'll go through them. Um, It'll be Mark 4.34, I believe it was Acts 19.39, and then we'll be looking through a series of where Joseph is interpreting dreams, and God is providing the interpretation. I think it's in Genesis 40-41, through and we'll see that term used in the Greek Septuagint, epileusis, and the the verbal form, too, will be used as well, epiluo. So, yes, it'll be used in those texts, and we'll see that. So, what I'm going to do is affirm in your minds that the issue was the interpretation. I'll build that case, then we'll end. But I want to give you an assignment... Because we'll get into Proverbs as well. Whoops, I went too far. I went a little crazy there. I'm all amped up. Proverbs 3, 13 through 35. We're going to start finishing the last section of Proverbs chapter 3. 
uh, Proverbs chapter 3, verses 13 through 35. So with that, I'll close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for our time together. We thank you, Lord, that you did not only give us the scriptures, but you validated the proper interpretation through your apostles, through the experience that they had where they saw you on the Mount of Transfiguration. We thank you for this, Lord. We pray, Heavenly Father, you give us ample opportunity to help those who are in error come out of it, that they would know that no one's entitled to their own interpretation because the author grounds the meaning, Lord. I do pray for Bob as he preaches out of 1 Corinthians 3 that today we would listen and hear, but we'd not just be hearers of the word, but doers, that we'd be those who listen and obey, that we'd persevere until the day that you do come for us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.